0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Thus book Zarathustra, A Reader's Guide. In the last section, a very long section, uh, we talked about unbelievers in a world behind. And I gave you a personal story to help elucidate some of the things that Nietzsche is talking about in that section about what kind of person, physiologically speaking, invents a god and tries to live with a god. And tries to find the joy and happiness of living with God and creating another world behind the scenes, one that we can't see, touch, feel, experience, who creates a thing in itself, who, who tries to escape to the world behind the scenes in an attempt to escape the suffering and sorrows of this world to live in another world that, based on the Platonic idea of infinite realities behind the scenes, focuses on the good and how joyful and great this God that we can't see must be because anything behind the scenes must be capable and must truly exist in that infinite sort of form. I've also alluded to the fact that Christianity is essentially that way of viewing the world, that the world behind the scenes, the thing that we can't know but that we can try and think about, is there, and that it uh, provides a profound amount of security and joy to the weak human being, the suffering human being, the, the human being that needs that other world to exist in order to justify our suffering in this world. My apologies again for the rather lengthy explanation of that section. Uh, As I mentioned, it's quite difficult to understand Nietzsche's point on that subject because it requires, for true understanding, having had the first revelation of understanding that there is this unknowable entity behind the scenes, that it is called God by all the great world religions, that Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy have tried to more academically describe that thing as either the thing in itself, the will, the form of the good. And in order to get you to Nietzsche's position where he essentially disagrees with that interpretation of reality and says that only this world that we can live and experience matters, to get you to that second revelation, I needed to give you a bit of a background on my own searching, my own thinking, to hopefully lead you to some understanding of what that first revelation was all about so that I could get to Nietzsche's revelation where he centers reality much more on human lived experience and what we can see, can touch, can know. In today's section, we're going to be extending this a bit. Nietzsche is a big fan of physiological explanations of things. So for the believers in God, believers in a world behind, Nietzsche really cares about what kind of human being needs this view of reality. Psychologically speaking, why do people need to believe that? And in this section on Despisers of the Body, Nietzsche is going to further extend his very physiological, organic, biological view of reality and give us his understanding of what it is to be a human being in the biological sense. Uh, so we're going to come across his thoughts on mind-body dualism, which is something that goes back all the way to Plato through Christianity and is explained probably most famously uh, by Descartes and Cartesian dualism, I think, therefore I am. And... Similar to what we saw in the last section, where having an incorrect, bifurcated view of reality as thing in itself and mere appearance, as will and representation, as platonic form of the good and the mere shadows of that that we see or in the Christian sense as God and as the things of this world we're going to see how nietzsche thinks that similar to an external understanding of the world as two separate things creates all sorts of confusion for human beings psychologically speaking the same thing happens with an incorrect bifurcated view of the internal world of thinking of ourselves as mind and body as soul and body And similar to the first section where a lot of confusion comes up from believing in the world as two separate things, one of which we experience, and then a reality behind the scenes, and then also given that reality, according to philosophy up until the 1800s, was a static entity, Nietzsche sees a view of that world, bifurcated external world whose essential nature is static goodness. All sorts of errors come up when you think about reality that way. Similar to our internal world having a sense of body and mind being two separate things whose essential nature, similar to reality, is static, is completely wrong. And while many of the ideas that we're going to come across later on in this book will inform our reading of this section, because Nietzsche sees mind-body as one thing, and he sees the essential nature of that as being will-to-power, this moving entity that's trying to become more than what it is right now, we can begin to understand what Nietzsche sees human being as from a biological sense that much better explains some of the internal struggling, internal suffering that our bodies go through, that according to previous psychologies based on a static view of the world whose essential nature is good, Uh, does a much better job explaining who we are, where we are, and what we have to deal with. So, with that, we can get into the actual section. Thus spoke Zarathustra, book one, chapter four, on the despisers of the body. To the despisers of the body will I say my word. Not that I would have them learn and teach differently, but simply say farewell to their own bodies, and thus become mute. Body am I, and soul, thus talks the child. And why should one not talk like children? But the awakened one, the one who knows, says, body am I, through and through, and nothing besides and soul is merely a word for something about the body. The body is a great reason, a manifold with one sense, a war and a peace, a herd and a herdsman. A tool of the body is your small reason too, my brother, which you call spirit. A small tool and toy of your great reason. I, you say, and are proud of this word. But the greater thing, in which you do not want to believe, is your body and its great reason. It does not say I, but does I. What the senses feel, what the spirit knows, that never has its end in itself. But senses and spirit would like to persuade you that they are the end of all things. That is how vain they are. Tools and toys are senses and spirit. Behind them there yet lies the self. The self seeks with the eyes of the senses, too. It listens with the ears of the spirit, too. Always the self listens and seeks. It compares, compels, conquers, destroys. It rules, and is also the eye's ruler. Behind your thoughts and feelings, my brother, stands a mighty commander, an unknown wise man. His name is Self. In your body he dwells. He is your body. There is more reason in your body than in your finest wisdom. And who knows to what end your body needs precisely your finest wisdom? Your self laughs at your eye and its proud leapings. What are these leapings and soarings of thought to me? It says to itself. A detour to my purpose. I am the leading reins of the eye and the prompter of its conceptions. The self says to the eye, Feel pain here, and then it suffers, and thinks about how it might suffer no more, and this is what it is meant to think. The self says to the eye, feel pleasure here, then it is happy, and thinks about how it might be happy again, and this is what it is meant to think. To the despisers of the body will I say a word, that they despise. That makes for respecting. What is it that created respecting and despising and value and willing? The creating self created for itself respecting and despising. It created pleasure and woe. The creating body created spirit for itself as a hand of its will. Even in your folly and despising, you despisers of the body. You are serving yourself. I say to you, your self itself wants to die and turns away from life. No longer can it do what it wants the most, to create beyond itself. That is what it wants the most. That is its entire fervor. But it has now become too late for that. So, yourself wants to go under, you despisers of the body. Yourself wants to go under, and therefore you became despisers of the body, for you are no longer able to create beyond yourselves. And therefore, you are now angry with life and the earth. An unconscious envy lurks in the squinting glance of your despising. I do not walk your way, you despisers of the body. You are for me no bridges to the overhuman. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So this section, just like the last one, and for all intents and purposes, like most of the sections in this book, is incredibly dense with ideas. Within about a page and a half, he touches on three or four Very critical fundamental ideas in the history of philosophy, in the history of religion, and in the history of psychology. At the end of all of it, Nietzsche is essentially trying to rectify 2,000, 2,500 years of false interpretation of reality and what that means for human being and how we consider ourselves in the world based on our concordance with the fundamental facts of reality are biological concordance, physiological concordance, and psychological concordance. And within it, in three or four of those big ideas that he touches upon, we can find how holding incorrect views of the basis of reality and incorrect views as, as to our knowledge of the basis of reality lead to humanity essentially completely misjudging itself and holding itself to account for these false judgments, feeling guilty, developing itself in certain ways, developing certain rituals to try and cleanse ourselves of this misinterpreted wrongdoing that we're doing. So very briefly in this section, we're going to talk about mind-body dualism. We're going to talk a bit about, even though it doesn't come up, very explicitly in this section it's very important Nietzsche focuses on it in many different writings elsewhere the role of reason in philosophy in as much as it pertains to the spirit what the spirit thinks how the spirit knows how we we can relate to reality with our minds we're going to talk about the I and the self the ego and the self and then finally how the self as Nietzsche sees it, but as essentially will to power is the leading reins of everything that you think, everything that you feel, and how it's the great hidden director of the unfolding processes of your life. So first I'm going to talk about reason and philosophy. Based on the platonic view of the world, where there's the things that we see, which are the paltry, pale imitation of the things behind the scenes, there's an idea that pops out of that way of viewing the world that says, okay, this tree in front of me, the leaves are green. I don't know, based on my limited perceptual capabilities, what green actually means. What is green actually? And so based on this platonic view of the world of having certain characteristics that we can understand, but by being limited by our perceptual capabilities, there must be some much more intense real reality to that green leaf that we can't know. However, our spirit, our ability to think, and our ability to conceptualize is the one thing that more closely and accurately allows us to understand reality, to understand God, to understand this world behind the scenes. If we, as human beings, weren't capable of conceptualizing, we would simply experience the things around us as they are, and we wouldn't be able to question their reality. We wouldn't be able to formulate the ideas that allow us to say oh there is a world behind the scenes and perhaps more importantly according to this platonic pre-christian way of thinking the concepts themselves that we have in our brain are the are a better representation to actual reality than the things that we see because we're able to say okay that leaf is green, I see it as green, it must be infinitely more green than it appears to me. And so in our heads with the the ability to create concepts, the ability to have words for things, we can take the concept green and universalize it. We can abstract it and refine it and say, oh, well, that's green and green... Has all these characteristics, and I can now think about this universal form of green. I can think of green per se, rather than a green leaf. And so the ability to take reality as it appears to us, abstract out the different concepts that pertain to reality, and then in our head try and imagine as much as is possible more infinite, refined versions of those concepts. Essentially, the Platonic way of thinking is to get away from the senses, to abstract the things from reality that we can describe, and then to idealize our conceptions of them. So we look around us, we see a yellow banana, we see a green thing, we see a heavy brick, and we're able to take those concepts of yellow, green, heavy, courageous, heroic, strong, small, we're able to abstract those and idealize them, take them out of reality, use them just in our brain, and imagine that these things exist on their own in an infinite form. So in Plato, in Christianity, in basically all the different religions of the world, this, this psychological trick has been one of the biggest things that has led human beings to think that there's a world behind the scenes and that we owe something to it. And that we can try and understand it not through our experience, not through the tools of our body, but only through the tools of our mind. And so with this distinction between what we can see and what we can know, and in combination with the view of reality as the supremely good, supremely loving thing, it's not too much of a jump to then say that, okay, well, humans based on a the interpretation of reality as never-changing good, B, our inability to physically experience it, and C, our only ability to try and experience it is a psychological one, it's pretty quick to then say, okay, well, then human beings who who saw the world as fundamentally good, but that our bodies got in the way of our being able to understand it and that it's only with our minds that we can try and understand it, you can see that there'd be a big push from that to say, okay, we need to be good. We need to look down on our bodies because they prevent us from understanding this awesome, perfect, great, beautiful, loving, good reality behind the scenes. And it's only with our brains that we can can live in that world, live with that world, and truly admire God and reality. And... Not just that, not just the body getting in the way of seeing the world for how good it is, and how green it is, and how heavy it is, and all that stuff, but also the fact that our body and our bodily impulses, our desires for food, our desires for sex, our aggression, our desires for justice and retribution, all of the instinctual drives within humans... When compared to a reality that is all-loving and all-good and all-great, those drives seem to be completely opposed to the fundamental facts of reality as Platonists, Christians, philosophers, and everyone up until 200 years ago saw reality. They said, reality is this good thing. We should try and be good. We should try and be loving. Uh, I'm God just as much as you are. I'm reality just as much as you are. And I should treat you like my neighbor, all those things that sort of pop out of that conceptual way of seeing reality say that we need to be good to each other. We need to be great and loving and, and not cause too much harm or heartache or anything like that. You can even hear echoes of this in utilitarianism. The greatest good for the greatest number. Um, this notion that things are good and that we have that goodness within us and then the second realization that our minds can understand that, but our bodies are completely different from that and want aggression, want war, want to kill, want to steal, want sex. All of the sins, all of the missing the mark, all of the trying to be good but being unable to because of our human instincts, you can see how a group of people who consider reality to be this, Im- this permanent good thing would immediately cast doubt and suspicion and derision upon our bodies. Because our bodies are the thing that don't allow us to understand God, don't allow us to understand reality. And more than that, they cause us to sin. They cause us to do evil things. They cause us to hate our neighbor. They cause us to go to war. They cause us to want to accumulate things. They want us to build empires. And it's really, from the Christian way of thinking... From the platonic way of thinking of seeing things as permanent good and trying to see humans as a failed version of a biological entity that could be good but for whatever reason isn't you can see how this deep-seated revenge and disappointment and anger at the uncleanliness of humans relative to this good nature of the universe would cause a lot of people to get really upset at all of the human instincts and try and clamp them down. So the, the history of Christianity, the history of most world religions and trying to keep people from going to war, to keep the instincts, the human instincts, from, from running rampant, to, to look down on sex, to look down on all the things that seem to be the most animalistic about us, That's where those come from. So that's how, based on the Platonic way of thinking, the Christian way of thinking, that there's a reality behind the scenes and the mere appearance to us, that we can know a bit about the reality behind the scenes, but only through our brain and only through our mind, and that the essence of the universe is fundamentally permanent good. You can see how having a worldview based on those ideas would lead to certain ethical actions and certain ways of judging human beings, humanity, and how we're all set up. Nietzsche takes great issue with this for many reasons. As we know, Nietzsche is one of the first thinkers, by no means the first, but one of the first thinkers to really consider underlying reality as a moving phenomenon. Secondly, he doesn't think that the essence of that moving phenomenon, of becoming, is good. So while Plato said that everything is fundamentally good and we should try and be as good as we can, Nietzsche says no, everything is fundamentally changing. It includes good, it includes bad, it includes all of these characteristics that, yes, you're saying exist. It includes those but its fundamental essence is will to power, that this moving entity through time that that we can know parts of but can't know other parts of, we can understand its teleological move of moving towards growth and power. He says that's the fundamental essence of the universe, and there's there's two things that happen there. One, it's moving. It's constantly growing. It's constantly changing. And one thing that happens with humans when we use language is that we think by having a word for something, we understand it. And that in having that word for something, we're able to abstract all the qualities that exist about it and list them down. And there's a difference in language compared to reality. Language is a very fundamentally static thing. Words represent generally nouns. Yeah, we have words for verbs and stuff, but when we we when we say the word flower, everyone pops into their head a different version of a flower, but we're all thinking about something with petals and oh, there's a nice bee flying around, hooray. But really, Noun words, according to Nietzschean thought, and according to people who believe that the world is this continual process of happening. Nouns make mummies of words. And by believing in those mummifications of words, by killing what you're trying to essentially describe by by making it a static entity, you you begin to see the world in a very different way. So when I say the word flower, people are going to think of a picture of a flower. And really, in in believing that we've captured the essence of flower, this is where the abstraction principle that we just talked about with Plato happens. It's like, oh, okay, I've captured something important about this entity, and I can, I can now think about all the different characteristics that make it up, and I can idealize all these different things. So, okay, flower, it's got pink leaves on it. So, oh, pink, there must be some infinite version of pink. And oh, it's got green green leaves, and it's a certain amount of uh, it's a certain amount of rigidity in its stalk, so it stays this way. Wow, rigidity—that's a really cool thing that the universe is capable of. Hooray! And so this platonic, this platonic static way of looking at the world leads you down one path of thought, where you start to think of things as static entities, and you can start thinking about those adjectives that describe it as these universal versions of themselves. And so you get into this sort of God-worshipping thing where you say, wow, pink is so cool, and green is so cool, and like, wow, flowers exist. That's fantastic. And it is. It's pretty cool. But Nietzsche, and he does foreshadow this in some of his writings, uh, Wittgenstein probably gets more credit for this sort of stuff, but I do think it's in Nietzsche. Language is many things, but it is not solely a way of describing reality. It's not like you come up with a final version of describing reality with words. Essentially what language is, is a way for organic beings to communicate relevant facts about the world to each other for the purposes of decision-making and human action. So instead of saying, oh, look, like there's a flower. I have captured some part of reality. Instead of actually describing reality as it is, What you're essentially doing is translating a reality that you can barely comprehend in front of you, running that comprehension through your brain, trying to come up with words that try and explain that reality you can barely see, making noises with your mouth that hopefully reflect the words that you think you know to someone else who then has to interpret those words, hopefully in the same way that you meant them come up with a similar picture in their head to hopefully what you're thinking, and then themselves put that into reality to try and understand what you're talking about. And this is where the real value of language comes in. It's the ability to communicate with other beings so that you can come up with ethical reactions and decisions to to events that matter to our survival and procreation. That's essentially what language is. I can communicate it to you. You can, based on the words that I've used, come up with your own visual image of it and try and imagine what it is that I've seen. And so, essentially, language is like a several degrees removed version of reality where its main purpose is to guide human action. Whereas, as Nietzsche points out, the way that language and the categories of reason have been believed in to be real entities so far throughout the course of humanity from platonism down this belief in concepts this belief in abstraction and the belief in their reality and the belief in ideas and the belief in in the staticness of these things it takes a living moving thing and tries to dry it out tries to make it a make it a a being entity rather than a becoming entity so in the little description that i just used to show you how language is typically used by humans it's really something for action i'm going to describe this flower so that you can go out to the garden find the flower that i'm looking for and pull it out so we can put it inside somewhere we use language to try and help us navigate our way through the world whereas christianity plato and all these philosophers for 2000 years thought that by using language we could actually understand something about reality and so Based on the view that reality is this sort of static thing, we think that the characteristics which belong to things are also static things. So when I say to you, flower, you're going to come up with a picture of a flower. But really, what, what, like, what is a flower? And it's very hard to pin down what a flower is because it starts out as maybe a seed from another flower that has been blown through the wind, landed in some dirt and then in the springtime it, it it starts to sprout, and then it comes up, and then for a couple weeks it blooms, and then after that it starts to wither and die, and then the constituent parts of it, which are moving atoms and moving molecules, constantly moving, constantly moving, they then die and become the the soil from which another flower might bloom. And similar to essentially some videos that I've told you guys to watch before about a strawberry growing or flowers opening and dying, if you watch the time-lapse videos of this, it, it becomes more obvious, although it's a bit difficult to think about, it becomes more obvious that by saying the word flower, we're trying to capture essentially one slice in time of a moving process. The flower, it's very hard to define what that flower is, Because at any given point in time, it's in a stage of becoming. It's either pre-birth, fully maturing flower, or a dying flower. And all the atoms and molecules that make it up are constantly moving around, constantly flowing into the organism, flowing out. All the constituent parts of that flower are constantly moving, constantly in this developing stage. And the word flower makes us think that it's actually a permanent entity, and that it goes through discrete stages that, okay, well, first it was a seed, and then it becomes a germinating sprout, and then it becomes a a flower, and then it dies away, and there's no more flower. That's sort of the scientific, let's cut the process into discrete sections and try and describe those way of approaching the problem. But if you actually try and look at what's happening, it's this, this flower is this becoming from nothingness and going back into nothingness and it's it's a much more slippery concept than something that we can actually sit down and define statically. And human beings for a long time have thought that in having a word for something we understand it uh, whereas in reality there's uh, everything is constantly shifting constantly moving around and our words are simple, abstractions that help us clarify a lot of the complexity that we're not even capable of understanding to simply reduce the problem to something that we can make quick human decisions with. That's essentially what language is, and it's very tied up in the concepts of reason and the concepts that we have in our minds, in our spirits that we use to describe things. So with that brief description of reason and language and the ways in which they make us misinterpret reality out of the way. I can get into some of the more explicitly talked about themes in this chapter. So the first one addressed is really this Cartesian dualism idea, that we have a body and that we have a mind. And as I just described, this way of seeing reality has plagued, has plagued us for thousands of years. Zarathustra here quotes a child saying, body am I and soul. But then he goes on to say the awakened one, the one who knows, says, body am I through and through and nothing besides, and soul is merely a word for something about the body. So in those two short sentences, Nietzsche's essentially getting rid of what we just talked about with Plato, with this bifurcation within ourselves between mind and body. And so all of the things that come out of thinking of those two things separately and thinking about a reality that is fundamentally good, those all fall apart. He says, no, like our our mind and our spirit are not separate entities. They're rooted in our biology. They're just something about the body and nothing more. And all of the leapings of reason and all of the mistakes that we make with our false view of language about trying to describe the world as a static place and trying to see it as a good place and trying to see our minds as the only thing as being capable of understanding that good static world and that our body, this, this monster of sin, should be, should be starved and locked away. All of those things fall apart with Nietzsche's view that our minds are simply something about our body so from plato through christianity all the way to descartes saying that i think therefore i am that maybe everything that i see is deceiving me maybe i just live in a dream maybe i can't trust the evidence of my eyes maybe maybe i should doubt all these things but there's one thing i can't doubt that i think therefore i am The Nietzsche says, no, by separating mind and body, you allow yourself to fall into the trap of thinking of a reality behind the scenes that you can only know with your mind of all the traps of language about thinking that you can understand static entities when really they're all moving and you can't really understand much of it. And then, based on how your lies of interpretation about reality is a static good thing and your mind being the only thing that can relate to it, you then cast suspicion on your body and the things of this world. Whereas, realistically, all that there is is this world and the things of your body, and your soul is merely something about your body it's an emergent phenomenon that is has been created to help you cope in some way with this crazy reality that you've been thrown into so after essentially rejecting mind-body duality uh, and therefore everything that comes with it in the form of reason and idealization about reason and about our minds being the only thing that can access God and everything that I just spoke about for 20 minutes in two sentences. Nietzsche then goes on to describe what the body is and after after coming through and denying mind-body dualism Nietzsche starts talking about ego self-dualism. Now I'm going to pause the podcast here and discuss that ego-self-dualism in the next episode. Because we've spoken a lot today about the role of language, the role of reason in how we consider the universe and how we get static ideals from them and how that leads to us thinking about the world in certain ways and this overemphasis on thinking about the world versus using the instruments of your body and the great reason of your body, as Nietzsche is about to discuss. Uh, It's an important thing to consider, it's an important thing to think about. (sighs) I, I think that I've given a good overview. I know that a lot of this stuff is confusing and a lot of folks haven't considered this stuff before. So I'm gonna wrap up this podcast here and in the next episode we can get a bit more into what Nietzsche actually thinks about the body and the body's role in creating valuations, the body's role in guiding our thoughts, and guiding what our senses see and our, our thinking knows. So thanks for joining everyone, and I'll talk to you next time. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. If you know anyone who you think might like this, your friends, your family, your loved ones, co-workers, anyone who you think might be interested in the message, feel free to share with them. It's very helpful to me, very helpful to the show, and gets out some of the hopefully good ideas that we're trying to spread. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, very hateful things to say, you can reach me on my website at alexdrake.CA. I'm also on Twitter at@, at Alexj.drake. Um, Feel free to subscribe in iTunes, rate in iTunes. Anything you can do to help the show is great, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks.